Hello and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller and my guest today is... David Matthews. Player Matthews, it's been a long time. It's great to see you. Uh, you're in a book-lined room and you've just told me off-air that you're in a, a book-lined house. Yeah, it um, uh, remains uh, an occupational hazard, though... Uh, perhaps less so for coming generations of scholars, I don't know, but this is a flat into which several books come every week and very, very few leave it permanently. So as I was just saying to you off air, I also have a separate office with another several hundred uh, tomes of a very august kind, those old sort of 19th century societies like the early English text society that just keep producing books every year and they roll into the office. Wonderful. And Prof, tell us, if you would, what's on your mind at the moment? What's dynamizing you, preoccupying you, interesting you? I have been very fortunate to have spent the past year, the past calendar year, uh, on a, a, a Levy Hume Research Fellowship, which uh, I devoted to um, my current research, uh, which is um, about the way in which uh, medieval writing, Middle English writing and language survived into the 16th century and indeed flourished in the 16th century, even though under the conditions of Reformation, it shouldn't really have survived at all uh, in many ways. So I, I, my uh, head has been very much immersed in that over the past year rather than teaching uh, or university administration, though I've just returned to both. Um, and yes, in you know, early in 2024, in a, in a context that frankly doesn't look particularly hopeful in a whole lot of directions. Uh, so I'm I'm in a kind of a slightly strange space of emerging from uh, a pretty intense period of research into a uh, you know, fairly kind of niche area, and now returning to. The modern day university in the world of 2024. It's a bit of a, a bit of a shock. And in terms of that field of study, could you tell us about medieval English and the challenges it faced as a consequence of the Reformation and how it did survive for so long? Yeah, the the conventional idea of history of the language uh, for a long time has been that there was an acceleration of language change at the end of the 15th century thereabouts. So around the time the printing press is first seen in, in England, though the two things aren't necessarily related. Uh, that is a very much a kind of product of 19th century philology, which which loved this loved these neat constructions. One form of English comes to an end quite abruptly. Another form of English comes into being. Uh, we become incipiently modern around about 1500, and the English language reflects that. Actually, very few people believe that the neatness of that narrative about the language, at least, and that the more I look into it, the, the more I realise there's no question there's a difference between medieval English and what follows in the 16th century, but it takes about a century and a half to, for most of these changes uh, to um, become uh, clear, and it's an uneven kind of progress. Um, the challenges you refer to I mean, the, 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 with the 1530s, the sort of shift in religious direction under the influence first of people like Thomas Cromwell, um, you, you start to have an attitude towards the medieval past that decries that that past. You start to see uh, a, a break or the concept of a break put in place. Uh, the past is um, a time of of superstition, of um, monastic corruption, and so on and so forth. And these exaggerated ideas get put in place so that things like the dissolution of the monasteries in the 1530s can go ahead uh, the more the more easily. And that kind of narrative of a break 
is one we've never really got rid of. Um, and it was hugely exaggerated in its time, as more recent historians of the Reformation have pointed out. Yes, of course, there were these changes. There was the dissolution. The monasteries did um, effectively disappear. But uh, all kinds of cultural practices just go on, just continue uh, at a sort of at a much more local level, mm -hmm. at, say, the level of um, the parish, country parish, that kind of thing. Uh, and for my purposes, there's a whole literature, and I'm using literature in a very broad sense. Really, I mean writing of all kinds, devotional writing as much as I mean Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Uh, it just keeps going. Um, it appears in uh, the technology of print, which is becoming much more widespread at the time. But people are also sharing around manuscripts, medieval manuscripts, which they find valuable. Um, some people take printed works of um, medieval texts and write them out again as manuscripts, which uh, I, I think is kind of corrective idea of the supremacy of print that once comes along interested in manuscripts. Well, plenty of people, uh, one of the answers. And is there some expansion in literacy with Printing? Uh, it, it seems so, yeah, yeah. Um, there's probably more widespread schooling in the 16th century and a bit more of an emphasis on, on that. Uh, of course, print has been credited with all kinds of things, um, spread of literacy, the beginnings of the nation state, you know, the classic Benedict Anderson idea that it's only with print uh, and with the dissemination uh, that print enables that, that you can get the conditions making the nation state possible. Um, the, um, uh, and, of course, the, the spread of availability of, of, of the Bible uh, in print. Uh, is also important. Um, we need to be quite sort of expansive about our notions of, of, of literacy here. I mean, I think one of the things that print enables is that um, uh, certainly there are more instances of a given book available, uh, but that doesn't mean that individuals all had their own books, their own libraries. I think we need to think about households in which there might be one copy of a given thing, perhaps being read out to a family, perhaps being read out to a household, including servants. So, I mean, that's a sort of more complicated way of saying, yes, there's expansion of literacy, but not necessarily expansion of the sort of private model reading and version of literacy that we talk about. And you're saying that Chaucer is testimony in a sense to the survival of the language. When I did my O-levels, which were public exams in Britain for people at the age of about 15 or 16 that would, in a sense, determine whether or not they went on to more specialised study in the last two years of high school and on to university, the only English literature we read for our two O-levels in English were Richard II, the play by Shakespeare, and the prologue to the Canterbury Tales by Chaucer. So in the mid-1970s, Chaucer was very much there, and we were scolded by our brutal teacher for not automatically understanding <laughs> what Chaucer was writing. Uh, and the textbook had very minimal <laughs> explanations, which normally amounted to things like, you know, when the nun would wear an A around her neck, it stood for Amor Winkit Omnia, Love Conquers All, but nothing much in terms of the language. Mm. So the old bastard was still there <laughs> 500 years later, old thing, as far as I could tell. Absolutely. The, the, the old bastard famously uh, has never been out of print, so, or so they say. Uh, um, 
So the Canterbury Tales was published, printed very, very early by Caxton in 1476 or seven or so, and that's within a year or two of Caxton setting up Westminster. Prints it again in the 1480s. Then throughout the 16th century, there is this tradition of um, of printing ever more expansive versions of, of Chaucer. That the experience you relate is an interesting one, and I, I just something that I've um, written about in another context is the the way in which Chaucer gets adopted, particularly in the 19th century, and with the spread of uh, something like the the Forster Education Act, which I think is about 1870, um, you start to get sort of mandated schooling. There is, in a sense, there are no, there's no sort of literature for school children, in, in a sense, to exaggerate a bit. And one of the things you certainly see at that time is the extraordinary proliferation of versions of Chaucer for children, whether translated and cleaned up or put into some sort of weird phonetic kind of writing so that you can, you know, in theory, pronounce Chaucer in a Middle English way, which is something that's also being discovered. So your, your experience in the 1970s actually derives from things set up in the, the 1870s. I, I, yeah, it's an odd thing to do to, I suppose it's your, it was your heritage. You should have been able to um, automatically... Uh, uh, you know, spout forth um, Chaucer. I think, though, and I teach Chaucer most years, I, I think there's a sense in which it's genuinely getting more difficult for um, people of undergraduate age to read Chaucer today. I mean, you have more apparatus and more help probably than you've ever had to read something in late Middle English. But um, a past generation, such as mine or yours, was probably already uh, maybe a bit more familiar with Shakespearean language, which, help, which helps a bit. Uh, another generation still would have been, would have had a, would have been more conversant with the, the Bible, say. I mean, I'm, I'm making generalizations here, but I think there's a kind of disconnection between people of undergraduate age now and late Middle English that certainly wouldn't have been there in the 19th century, that sort of small mm -hmm. uh, literate fraction of the population that was coming to Chaucer for the first time would have been aided by a knowledge of Bible, perhaps by seeing lots of Shakespeare uh, performed in, in various ways. Um, and even people of our generation who read the Bible probably read the King James Version. Yeah. As opposed to more vernacular versions that appeared, you know, probably when we were in high school or, or a, a bit before or after, but were not taken up immediately amongst the middle classes uh, in the way that the King James continued to have a, a hegemonic position, I think. No, you're absolutely right. When I said when I said the Bible just now, I almost sort of automatically meant the King James version, which mm. is familiar to me. Though, just as you say, um, what I remember, "Good News for Modern Man." That's the in, one. Yes, which is the sort of uh, populist vernacular. Uh, you yeah. will be saved if you read this little book. If, if you read this book, yeah. Uh, which... I was lucky in that Mao's little red book. And the Little Red School book came out and saved me from good news for modern man and made me think that maybe modern women deserve some news as well. Yes, yes, yes. They they never got their own uh, <laughs> their own good news book. <laughs> yeah, it was a – I can't say I remember any phrase whatsoever from good news for modern man. But, I don't um, think I ever opened it. I mean, I think we were all given a copy. But yeah. I, I think I just read the King James – version that my father had had um, 30 years before. Now, Prof, getting back to Chaucer, you've written a lot about Chaucer, and you've just described in really, I think, brilliant ways some of the difficulties that current undergrads experience. But I have to tell you, 
however hard they find it, they can't have had as bad a time as I did, to, uh, I, I think. Um, but how do you account for Chaucer's survival? I mean, it's not as though he is held up internationally as a great stylist in the way that Shakespeare is, and really all over the world. And, you know, Shakespeare's been translated, as you know, into every conceivable language. I don't know about Chaucer. But Chaucer survives. What do you put that down to? Well, it's a very good question. On that last point, uh, the point about translation into, into other languages, there is um, an extraordinarily uh, diverse uh, range of, of ways in which Chaucer has been Trans using translation in the broadest sense. So uh, there's a website uh, called Global Chaucer's, which anyone interested can can look at. It's, it's really about adaptations and um, versions of Chaucer around the world, extraordinarily diverse, um, which only kind of lends weight to your your question: you know, why, why should why should this be? Because Chaucer's in a very different position from Shakespeare you don't by and large perform Chaucer as you do Shakespeare it's a, it's a different world altogether you, you really have to at least sort of sit and listen to Chaucer um, or sit and read Chaucer um, yeah I think um, there's, it's probably a a two-part kind of answer or, or, or a, a phenomenon of of two parts, where, as I said, Chaucer goes on being being printed. If any Middle English is going to be printed, ultimately it would be Chaucer. So uh, I said there's a lot of Middle English in the 16th century, and that's true, but by the end of the 16th century, it's finally beginning to fade away. People are not reading it. The language is becoming, is finally becoming too difficult, uh, and there are other as well. Chaucer's the only... Uh, exception. So you get a couple of major editions right at the end of the reign of Elizabeth. This um, sets up the possibility for the later tradition by which someone like Dryden will say things, leave his famous quotable quote, here is God's plenty, he says of the Cadbury Tales. Um, he says Chaucer's the father of English poetry. He's not the one who invents that line, but he's certainly the person who who cements that popular idea. Chaucer's the father of English poetry. You've got to start with Chaucer, uh, says Dryden. Um, so you, you have coming into the 18th century a, a, a tradition that, that does um, lord Chaucer and put him in a way alongside Shakespeare. I, I do suspect that by the end of the 18th century, Chaucer's sort of famous for being famous, um, not really much being read a bit like um, themselves I, yes the comparison does call out to be made perhaps we can discuss that later um <laughs> there are trans famous translations in the 18th century uh um you know um pope uh translates a few of the Canterbury tales also this sort of sense that perhaps the Canterbury tales aren't um you know fit or polite society. So coming into the 19th century, I, I really I don't think many people were reading Chaucer. I think you had to be part of an educated elite interested in, in poetry. There isn't, I don't think there's much of that sort of way in which, um, you know, an educated working class or lower middle class person feels it necessary to, to know about Chaucer. The way I'm, I'm going out on a limb here, but maybe the way, um, you know, the standing that, say, Burns has in Scotland, um, I don't think Chaucer quite occupies that position. And there's a line which I, I, I think it was Walter Pater, sort of great guardian of um, aesthetics in the 19th century, who uh, uh, hears of a, um, a translation of, of Chaucer's works that has just come out and says something like, uh, well, of course, I, I knew about Chaucer, but I didn't know he was important enough to be translated. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a, a very real way in which 
Chaucer just doesn't sort of match up um, in an era dominated by a neoclassical education, by, by you know, dominated by classical canons. Um, that would be uh, that, that. That's part of my answer to that. I and I think what changes the second part of it is what I was talking about before: the way in which, in the second half of the century, uh, there are these huge efforts to bring Chaucer into the mainstream. And I mentioned the, the sort of children's adaptation by which Chaucer eventually finds his way into the school, but. Uh, I should mention also here, I talked about all these primary texts I have in my office. The Chaucer Society, which is founded in 1868, is um, a subscription society which is dedicated largely successfully to promoting Chaucer, uh, to getting this poet better known, to finding better manuscripts than those that, that were known at that time. And um, so that starts in the late 1860s. Its work is done by about 1910, I think it was wound up around then. And that, that really does transform the, the sort of the basis of Chaucer studies by finding manuscripts, by doing work on, on pronunciation. What's the appeal that it makes? Well, it is partly um, a kind of nationalist appeal. It's partly... Um, this is taking place in the context of Victorian imperial expansion and then the expansion of uh, a, a kind of educational franchise. Um, and I don't know, I mean, that does that answer your question about the slightly, what I agree with you is a slightly odd emphasis on Chaucer, slightly odd importance of Chaucer coming into the 20th century. No, that's very helpful. And it, it made me think about some of the stimuli, apart from the brutality of the Oxford and Cambridge O-level, which was not confined to Chaucer, I should say. <laughs> um, no, it it makes me think about something that I'm I'm wondering if you try to bribe your undergrads with, which is the Pasolini movie. And then I think there's sort of 30 years later, a BBC television adaptation. There are probably others that I'm not aware of, but those are two that come to mind. Can you shove this at them and say, here, look at this. It's Pasolini. It's naughty. How bawdy was the uh, was uh, Chaucer? And look, here's the BBC. Ordinary people can watch this stuff. Yeah, the BBC one, you're thinking of the one that uses a lot of animation. The... Um, um, uh, I've forgotten the name of the director. It'll come back to me. That's quite an interesting one. Um, I do use those things, and I do uh, show that the Pasolini film is fairly neatly divided into separate tales that one can can show, uh, you know, in the space of a few minutes or so. Um, I do use those things generally in. A, a later session of any course on Chaucer that I'm I'm teaching. In other words, I like to think that I'm not bribing the students. It's, it's a reward. It's a reward. It's a reward. <laughs> yes. So you've done six weeks of hard graft, people. Um, and you know, as you know, um, it, it uh, the, the way in which the, the English language is is taught today, uh, undergraduates don't necessarily know. Uh, they don't necessarily have a strong grasp of traditional grammar. Uh, that makes it difficult to talk about grammar in an old language when, you know, they, they don't have the same sort of uh, terminology that I might have when it comes to the modern language. So it is sort of hard graph to say, okay, how are we going to, how are we going to read Chaucer, spend a few weeks doing that? And I, I, yeah, I try to, a bit of the payoff is then to go to things like, um, uh, I, I think some parts of the Pasolini film are terrific. The, the version of the Pardoner's Tale um, is, uh, a, I, I think, is a terrific part of that. Um, and there are things in the BBC series, uh, actually, also the Pardoner's Tale, um, but there are there are other aspects. There's a a way in which, and, and Pasolini is the big part of this. Again, sort of thinking about the Chaucer inheritance. 
for a lot of people, Chaucer is bawdy. That's what that's what Chaucer is 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 known for, um, and that is a an impression I try to work against. Um, that so that doesn't sit entirely comfortably with um, the uh, John, Jonathan Myerson has come back to me as the director of that BBC series. Um, you know, which I think is really, really nicely done series. Lots of animation, some sort of claymation, uh, some drawn animation. Um, there, there is a tendency for things to reduce to the genre that, that that we know as fablio. So Chaucer is very interested in a genre called fablio. So 13th century French genre by origin tends to be uh, very bawdy, usually turns on sexual jokes. Uh, very much concerned with the grotesque body, um, things like the Miller's Tale, the Reeves Tale, uh, and I, you know, I teach those things. I, I love teaching those tales. There's a way in which adapt modern adaptations of Chaucer or recentish adaptations of Chaucer reduce Chaucer to that sort of family owned mm. mode. Um, it's much harder to teach something like the neoclassical. Um, sort of classical romance, the knight's tale. Um, and um, I've been doing this for many years without ever uh, quite working out finally how to do it. <laughs> now, one of the very interesting themes, even if one cuts out the bawdy emphasis in Chaucer that may speak to some students, is gender, it seems to me. But there are very powerful messages in everything from you know, the nun to the knight to the wife of Bath, etc. Very powerful messages about gender and class, actually, that may resonate with people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's been from about the late 1980s uh, some some really, uh, you know, excellent uh Feminist scholarship and theory around Chaucer, which really, I think, kind of revivified uh, the critical scene. Um, you have most obviously this, um, perhaps the most famous figure that Chaucer ever created, certainly in the Canterbury Tales, in The Wife of Bath. Um, it's almost impossible not to teach The Wife of Bath because of the the way in which this very powerful female figure uh, articulates truths about matrimony, um, um, truths about what it is to, to to live as a woman in the late 14th century. I mean, okay, she's a fictional character, um, something that we need to to cling on to, but she does seem, in many ways, to to, to want to articulate kind of late 14th century mm-hmm. realities. Um, this kind of area of inquiry, the, the gender, has been recently sort of shaken up in an interesting way, um, which uh, I don't know, you might have might have seen, you might not. Um, in among the Chaucer life records, so Chaucer has a pretty well-recorded life. There's 500-odd records that, that mention him, you know, far more than you have for Shakespeare, for example. And in among these records is uh, a notorious record, or a couple of them actually, which appear to implicate Chaucer in a crime called Raptus involving a woman named Cecily Champagne. And um, so Raptus, the wording is in Latin, Raptus can mean abduction, but it can mean rape. Now, it doesn't say, these records don't say, I, Cecily Champagne, am accusing Chaucer of rape. It's a slightly more complicated. Uh, and scholars have been debating for uh, about 150 years since these records were discovered. What does this word raptus mean in this context? And um, you know, what precisely was, was going on? Chaucer, who even in the late Middle Ages, was acclaimed as, um, as I think, Scottish poet Gavin Douglas said he was he was always friend to women. Um, Chaucer, who seems so interested in um, femininity, 
what are we supposed to do with this this apparently damning legal record? So that kind of debate has gone on. And in recent years, people have tended to think, well, actually, it's more likely in the context to refer to a rape. Then just, um, wasn't last year, I think it was the year before, a couple of scholars um, found a further record, which in, in fact, changed the whole picture at least where this um this legal matter was concerned and in a way and i i, I choose these the, the next bit i'm going to choose words very carefully it appeared to exonerate chaucer from any crime of raptus whatever that that crime was and, and indeed it turned out that the whole case was about something else altogether it was about a a, a servant cecily champagne leaving one person's employ and moving to another the employ of another and um but without going into all the details it, it seemed to sort of as it were clear chaucer of involvement in any kind of nefarious crime of this kind it, i choose my words carefully because it was very interesting to see people critics reacting with uh relief and actually articulating things like you know i always knew chaucer hadn't done this or, you know, Chaucer's in the clear, which is, I think, a little beside the point. Uh, and some other scholars have pointed out, well, yep, okay, we know more than we did, but let's not, um, let's not forget that the late 14th century was not exactly a sort of paradise of uh, uh, equality of gender relations, there's still a very great deal to be said about about rape culture in the late 14th century. So we, you're absolutely right. It's, there's an enormous amount going on that one can talk about in the Canterbury Tales in, in relation to masculinity, femininity. Uh, the, the, the recent discovery of life records complicates that rather than, than mm. otherwise. Mm -hmm. You mentioned class. I've said nothing about that, but that's also that's another area in which there's been a, quite a lot of inquiry in the past probably two or three decades. And in terms of the old man's social circulation, in what becomes in Britain in the 20th century an important gateway to knowledge on the professions, which had been the classics, but became English, and the same in the United States after the First World War, right? A, a dramatic change from yeah. classics being it, uh, the Yale student graduating would have to have studied ancient Greek and Latin, but by the 1920s, he, and they were all men in those days, wouldn't have touched that with the proverbial. With the sort of triumph of English, however, Related and however temporary in universities in the 20th century. How does Chaucer fare? I mean, what do Frank and Queenie make of him? What does Empson make of him, Eliot, these sorts of gatekeepers in the first half of the 20th century? Is he in the canon? Is he in the grand tradition, the great tradition, or no? Certainly not in the great tradition, you know, in the strict sense, in the strict Levisian sense. I think um, part of the answer reflects on something you were you were talking about earlier, um, and when it comes to that that way in which you know English comes into its own at the expense of the classical languages and literatures to an, to an extent anyway. Uh, what is useful about Chaucer, what is useful about medieval literature more broadly, but uh, certainly about Chaucer, is that level of difficulty that you do need to work at it a bit. Um, you know, there is a moment uh, which perhaps only lasts I don't know, 20 or 30 years where comparative philology, broadly speaking, you know, the philology of the Germanic languages seems to offer something that is as rigorous as um, study of classical languages that it is to some extent replacing. So you can, you can be as a scholar both invested in your own native traditions 
uh, as opposed to you know, Greco-Roman traditions, and doing something that that is that is genuinely difficult and feels like work. Um, the, the, the Chaucer kind of has his role in that, in that there is difficulty. You know, you do have to work at it. This, albeit not as uh, not as much perhaps as you work at Latin poetry. Um, at the same time, it is, so to speak, proper poetry. Chaucer was credited with the invention in English of iambic pentameter. Um, most scholars would be a little bit careful about saying that these days, but there seems to be, it seems to be clear that Chaucer uses pentameter. This is the first time it's been used in the English language. So he is a kind of a proper poet you can put alongside later figures like Wyatt and, of course, Shakespeare. Um, so he offers all those, all those advantages. Um, there are ways in which Chaucer, so to speak, lets you down a bit, perhaps, with the bawdy tales. Um, and I, I think that probably uh, disqualifies him in the eyes of, say, the scrutiny people. I'm well before then. Another, you know, famous uh, line about Chaucer from Matthew Arnold. Chaucer, uh, Chaucer's praised by Arnold, but then Arnold kind of steps back and says, "But Chaucer is not one of the great classics. He lacks the the high seriousness." That's Arnold's phrase. He lacks the high seriousness that would be would be needed um, to be sort of placed in that firmament. Well, that view changes. Um, and that, that, that is a kind of classic 90s changes, but I think without really, um, getting Chaucer located thoroughly firmly in the canon. I'm just trying to think about you I when you raise the, the sort of scrutiny, leave us, uh, line on things. The, 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 the most famous Levisite, um, medievalist was John Spears, um, Got very excited about things like the, the poems of Gawain and the Green Knight, which is contemporary with Chaucer, uh, and, and wrote in ways that did help to promote Middle English literature. I think it only ever sort of remained adjacent to the Leverside canon without ever really being firmly fixed in it. Um, I don't know, you probably know yourself more about the, the sort of fate of Comparative philology, which gets so firmly kicked out of English studies, at least in the Cambridge tradition, doesn't it? I think the new, isn't it? The new Bolt report, I seem to recall, is sort of clear about drawing a line between literature and, and philology. Yes. And one of the interesting things uh, here in Spain, where I live, as in other parts of the continent, is that philology means you know, English or German or Spanish as literature and language. It doesn't mean the things that we use it for in the English language. In other words, the Department of English would be called the Department of English Philology without there necessarily being any of that antiquarian component. Well, Prof, I wanted to change tack, if I may, and thrust us, if I can use that expression, across across the Atlantic, and some of the work that you did, as they say in baseball, back, 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 uh, in the 1990s, and looking at the, one could say, invention of medievalism uh, as an academic object, as an, an entity of inquiry. And I'm interested in knowing what part U.S., research played in that and what part US university libraries and associations play and played in the uplift of medievalism as a concept? They played an enormous part. Um, I wrote an essay uh, a few years ago um, entitled Chaucer's American Accent uh, in which I I tried to explore, I mentioned the Chaucer Society a little earlier, a subscription society, which was very successful in, in terms of sort of getting editions of Chaucer out into the world. 
but it's very clear if you look at its records, it, it's very clear that it, it pretty much would have founded in its early years for lack of subscribers. The money just simply wouldn't have been there to keep producing texts if it hadn't been for the successful dissemination of the society's work in the uh, in the USA. Uh, and, and by that, really, I mean chiefly um, August universities in the in the northeast and uh, I suppose down the um, Atlantic seaboard. Um, Harvard University is is the most notable among these, where there was a figure called um, Francis James Child, very um, celebrated scholar of Chaucer, of ballads. Um, he was a kind of all round medievalist, as as, as people uh, often were in those those days, rather than narrowly focused. And uh, you can almost chart when you look at the um, the subscriber lists of the Chaucer Society. You could sort of chart the progress of Chaucer down the eastern seaboard of the United States of America, and those subscriptions often institutional university library subscri subscriptions to enable the society to to keep going um and that okay that's fairly narrowly focused talking about choice studies but it's it's interesting how many initiatives then keep coming from those kinds of institutions um so the big editions of Chaucer tended to come they tended to be the riverside edition emanating from Harvard. So it's changed a bit just in the past few years. But for a long time, the, the edition of complete works of Chaucer that, that anyone like me or probably you used was either Robinson's, um, uh, Robinson's second edition of, I think, about 1957, or what followed it, which was the Riverside Chaucer uh, of 1987. But that was, that was it. And they came out of... Um, Harvard, which is kind of curious that there wasn't a canonical British edition of Chaucer that everyone used. Um, rather, there was there was an American one. Um, okay, broaden out from Chaucer. Uh, I just um, reviewed not long ago uh, a book entitled "The United States of Medievalism," <laughs> which is uh, yeah, edited uh, uh, co-edited by. Um, Tyson Pugh, uh, a big figure in this field. And I'm sorry, I momentarily forget. You did mention Senior Moments, the name of his co-editor. <laughs> um, this is a book about that sort of set of uh, phenomena that, that you and I are also familiar with as sometime citizens of Australia, but that phenomenon by which Settler cultures, cultures that have been settled by um, by Britain, seamlessly adopt, for example, neo-Gothic uh, as their prime architectural idiom. So, um, of course, the US, like uh, like Australia, it, it features many neo-Gothic churches, which themselves reflect the, the great neo-Gothic building wave in Britain of the 1840s uh, and onwards. Um, this, this was seen for a while to be the way you, you did the built environment, the way you did that sort of culture in this medievalist way. So, you know, I, this book, United States of Medievalism, is one which explores the, 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 the way in which... Um, it's not just the built environment, but in terms of sort of ritual and carnivals, festivals, this kind of thing, the way in which the Middle Ages is, in a sense, recreated all around you if you mm -hmm. are in the US. Speaking as someone who grew up in the um, city of churches, uh, quote, unquote, uh, Adelaide in South Australia, it, to me, is really, really kind of natural to look around and see neo-Gothic everywhere, to see a medievalist idiom uh, the, the the built environment, um, and this translates. Um, I think it's certainly translated in the in the US to to come back to your question to a kind of widespread sense that medieval culture was a thing that you needed to do that 
medieval culture is where it starts. Whatever problems you might have with medieval culture, it's where it starts, in a sense, for the Anglophone world. Because if you go back any further than that, you're in the world of the Roman Empire and you're, you're at a remove. You know, Latin is not our, our language. Um, uh, much as, you know, classical buildings are incredibly important, say, in the 18th century, they are, in a sense, not ours, uh, which is what, you know, various people come to argue late 18th century or 19th century. Why are we building these Roman and Greek temples they start to say when we could be using our own um, idiom. Uh, and I think that gets way more complicated when you transplant that kind of culture to a place like the US. Uh, but it does have its does have its effect. And I think there's no question, no doubt, to come back to your original question, that the the this sort of um, transplanted settler culture uh, gives enormous impetus to the study of the Middle Ages in a place that didn't have its own Middle Ages. Yeah, interesting. Now, Prof, uh, a more recent work of yours or collection that you co-edited is about subaltern approaches to some of these questions. They're holding up the book, Subaltern Medievalisms. So my question to you for 10 is WTF, dude, what are they? <laughs> uh, in the past little while, the last past few decades, there's been a uh, the, the, the term medievalism has split off from medieval studies. And most people like me, by medievalism, mean not medieval things, but... Um, post-medieval understandings of the medieval, the post-medieval impact of the medieval, that's medievalism. And the way in which this has been studied over the past 30, 40 years uh, is to look at things like what I've just mentioned, the um, you know wave of neo-Gothic, which, uh, which is a phenomenon of architecture across Western Europe um, in the mid-19th century and beyond. Uh, also, of course, um, the historical novel and ultimately um, cinematic medievalism. Almost as soon as cinema is born, it starts trying to film the Middle Ages. Mm. Um, Robin Hood, for example, early cinematic subject. So that's medievalism, post-medieval impact. And the, the feeling of myself and the co-editor of the book you mentioned, who's a, a scholar of 19th century studies, colleague Michael Sanders, we, we had this feeling that, okay, we, we now know a great deal about, about, broadly speaking, elite medievalisms. So to take a classic example, in 1839, a few uh, aristocrats staged uh, a tournament called the Eglinton Tournament. They had armour made, they sort of trained their horses, they practised jousting, and they staged a, an actual tournament. Um on the basis of, on the inspiration of the famous tournament in Walter Scott's 1819 novel, Ivanhoe. Um, now, obviously, this is the kind of aristocratic display. Uh, the Eglinton tournament's usually uh, credited as being the, the origin of today's reenactment uh, movement. Back. Um, but it's very much um, an elite display of medievalism. Um, something like, say, the, the Houses of Parliament constructed in the 1830s and 40s in a decidedly neo-Gothic style is also, broadly speaking, an expression of an elite medievalism, if you like. And we, our, our question was simply, well, what was going on at other levels where perhaps uh, there might have been expressions of medievalism in less durable form? Did the working-class voices that are so, in, in other ways, prominent in the 1830s and 40s, or the middle-class liberal voices, did they sort of resist with more medievalism or did they do something different? So that, that was the idea behind mm -hmm. subaltern mm -hmm. medievalisms. Let's try to unearth um, uh, 
resistive, what we thought of broadly as resistive medievalism. And they do, in fact, exist. They exist in great uh, volume, albeit in less durable forms. Um, so we found out, for example, that in the first half of the 19th century, when the fame of Robin Hood is growing as a medieval, medieval figure or supposedly medieval figure who's known from a handful of ballads and plays, barely known at all in 1800, but becomes much more widely known in the first half of the 19th century. We found that another, there's another figure who was equally as well known, um, and that figure is the rebel Wat Tyler who uh, supposedly led the um, peasant and artisan rebels in the 1381 Great Revolt. Uh, and this the, the name of what Tyler is clearly one to conjure with for the Chartists uh, in the 1840s and for, and for people generally kind of resisting political tyranny. Uh, but because there aren't really any durable cultural monuments of what Tyler, there isn't the great Watt Tyler novel uh, of the, the 19th century. I mean, he does appear, but, you know, relatively obliquely. This is, this is lost. This kind of what we call subaltern medievalism has gone largely unrecorded. And we've, we've ended up with this idea that 19th century medievalism is chiefly about shining armour, you know, Tennysonian chivalry. And, of course, the other thing is Watt Tyler isn't an earl isn't an aristocrat in the way that Robin Hood supposedly was, and isn't dedicated to the crown and the crown in its pure form versus the calumny and monstrosity of local bureaucracies. Uh, what Tyler is a far more radical figure. Yeah, you can't really rewrite what Tyler. You, you can't, because uh, that version of Robin Hood that makes him into uh, a displaced aristocrat is only one version, but it does take over. Uh, 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 absolutely. It was what Tyler just, you can't really rewrite him in that way. He stays resolutely rebellious in an era of at least incipient rebellion. Yeah, um, yeah. In a revolutionary figure. Yeah. yeah. Well, Prof, I had one more question for you, and then I'd like to throw it to you. Should there be things that you want to subtract from or add to what we've discussed? which might include things we haven't touched on. So my last question is this. I'm a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed 24-year-old. I've just got my first-class honours degree in blah. I've come knocking on your door with a nice piece of cake or other sweet object of your liking to say, Prof D, I want to do a PhD and I want to become an academic. Do you say run away and work on the creative industries? Do you say, if they're thinking about that, actually that's very soon going to be old hat and not mean anything? Or do you say, come in, my child. We have wonderful things to discuss. Do I get none of the above? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is also an option. Uh, no, not quite none of the above. There is certainly a moment at which there is a talk uh, to be had in which I, like many of my colleagues, will say, you do realise this will come with no guarantees. And in our case, when we're talking about medieval studies, you need to really, really realise there are no guarantees here. There's, there's, there's no certain job uh, at the end of this. So, you, yeah, you do have that talk. Um, Ten years ago, I'd have a kind of... a. a, a an addition to that talk, which would be a concern that people wanting to work on the kinds of things I've just been talking about, mm. medievalism, as opposed to pure medieval studies, would not really have an obvious institutional home. Mm. So I work in the British system where jobs tend to be advertised fairly rigidly chronologically. And if you've worked on um, not Chaucer per se, but Chaucer in the 19th century, that makes you very difficult to, to pigeonhole. Oh, how um, interesting. Yeah. Uh, indeed, as I found out to my own uh, cost, trying to uh, get a job uh, in, <laughs> in Britain. And I think that the Manchester English Department is one of the few that's actually really open, was untroubled by the way in which my work lay across these two things. Um, so 
that talk also used to need to be had, like I say, about 10 years ago. These days, I think medievalism of the kind I've been talking about has really uh, taken off. Um, I've tried to argue in a couple of places that medievalism really boils down to a related cultural studies of the medieval, if you like, the cultural studies arm of medieval studies, and in that sense should be seen as having this very respectable um, lineage behind it. And we certainly are seeing people getting getting jobs in that sort of field now, um, particularly in some of the newer universities, which are a bit more open to the less canonical kind of work going on um, in literary studies, broadly speaking. Um, so yeah, I'm 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 still interested in people doing advanced work in that kind of uh, in this kind of broad sphere. I do encourage PhDs. Not many of them. There's not many people choose to do it, but there is a a, a trickle of people. They just need to be clear that in current conditions, it's not necessarily an academic job you're going to end up with. And you mentioned creative industries. I have worked on uh, two or three. PhD projects, I'm not the main person, but uh, where the, the the student is is writing a novel. In fact, we've got a couple of uh, students currently who are successful uh, novelists writing um, one case, a kind of uh, Arthurian-adjacent sort of work, mm. while also doing a bit of critical work with with me on, on medievalism. So that's another thing that's happening at the moment, I, I I think there does seem to be a huge market for fiction, um, broadly speaking, in the, the in a medievalist frame. So, to finish, Prof M, if you wish to, perhaps there are things you would like to add to or subtract from, as I said, what we've discussed. More product placement, perhaps. <laughs> Yes, I've got a stack of book, books here, but I shall refrain from uh, running the covers. Um, no, not a great deal to add. I, I, when you first suggested this, I thought, well, what place would, uh, what place would a medievalist have in the cultural studies blog? Um, and I've distinguished between broadly two sets of, of work, work in, in medieval studies and work in what I'm calling medievalism studies. And this is reflected in my own very cumbersome job title. I'm professor of medieval and medievalism studies. No excuse for that. I chose it myself, but I wanted to signal that, that those two different areas of work. So when you asked, I thought, well, what, what interest would people have? And I, I, my mind went back to this kind of um, key moment. And having opened this up, Toby, you're just going to have to live now with a few minutes of, of, of reminiscence, uh, my cultural studies journey. Um, I went to a traditional, I went to two quite traditional universities um, in Australia and, and certainly started with a very traditional undergraduate education, uh, which increasingly tended towards medieval English literature. And I, I think I've recorded elsewhere the way in which you know, I went to do a PhD at Melbourne University in a, in a moment that, with hindsight, was a moment of great kind of theoretical fervour in the late 1980s. Um, uh, so-called theory wars still going on. And, um, you know, one needed to be a bit careful, a bit more careful about one's allegiances, perhaps, um, in those days. Uh, and a great moment for me was... First of all, there was a, a, a kind of a point to doing medieval studies in Australia and not doing manuscripts and primary sources, not going to those august old libraries and getting into primary sources. That, that was part of the point of being a medievalist in Australia for me and certainly for my supervisor back then, Stephen Knight, um, to try to do something different from that kind of work. Big moment for me was going down into the bowels of the Balliol Library in, in the University of Melbourne and finding these uh, old tomes laid out, including the works of something called the Bannatine Society, which is where I found I was working on the 
14th century poem I've mentioned, To Go In and a Green Knight. And I found the the first edition of that poem, which was 1839, so very much in that medievalist moment that I was describing a little earlier. And I I, I kind of I realised the poem was only discovered in the 1820s. I realised looking at this version of the poem in 1839 that that something was going on here. That 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 the reinvention of the medieval in this mid 19th century moment was something special, something you know worthy of study. In one sense, it almost killed my career before it started, because as I said. Lots of people thought that's not proper medieval studies. We don't study what people studied in the 19th century. Um, get back to the original stuff, my friend. Uh, and that, that was a, yeah, a was a, a, a powerful attitude. But somehow I got through that moment and it is, it, it's, it was the, that moment, that discovery is kind of making of, of everything I've done really in, um, in uh, medieval studies since that sort of inchoate realization that how medieval studies was made is as important as what the medieval was that if i have any uh, insight to offer at the end of this interview is uh, is it not not unique uh, and took me many years of groping towards it but um that i think is um uh, that one moment that uh, made, to, to the extent that I have any distinction in the things I've done, that's it. I really appreciate your answer because I think for many people, finding the occasion or the occasions when lights go off and bells ring is incredibly valuable. So thanks very much, Prof. It was wonderful to chat to you. Great pleasure. Thanks, Toby.